There is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple-minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia, of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the tragedy of cinema's Twilight Zone. The hand belongs to Mr. Don S. Carter, male member of a honeymoon team en route across the Ohio countryside to New York City. In one moment, they will be subjected to a gift most humans never receive in a lifetime. For one penny, they'll be able to look into the future. The time is now. The place is a little diner in Ridgeview, Ohio. And what this young couple doesn't realize is that this town happens to lie on the outskirts of the Twilight Zone. All right, guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema's podcast, The Twilight Zone series. I'm your host, Jimbo, and joined once again by my co-host... 80s E, back in the fifth dimension, which is the place to be. Yep, back again. Um, man, if you guys knew the struggle that we had trying to get some of these recorded, it's amazing that by the time we get done uh, recording these that it's even coherent. Um, so Yeah, definitely. And, you know, with it being close to the holidays, it's just time to get... Uh, time gets less and less to get together, and yeah. part of that was my but, fault. But. Part of that was my fault this time because I did have a hole in my tooth and a root canal, uh, and I'm still waiting to get my crown on there. So at least I'm giving the old college try today. That's right. We're back just in the nick uh, of time. Uh, boom! Boom! <laughs> oh, he's got his own sound clips these days. So this this is going to be really interesting. So yeah. um, you know, this is an episode that Eric and I have pretty much discussed a while now um we got different viewpoints he likes this episode i'm not a real big fan of it um but we'll get there so eric let's go ahead and take away this episode of season two episode seven the nick of time all right okie doke this is the nick of time episode the twilight zone season number two this is episode number seven and it was directed by richard l bear and it was written by Richard Matheson. Uh, we have featured music, which is unfortunately uncredited in this episode. The original air date for this episode was November the 18th, 1960. Our total production cost was $43,263.05. And when we adjust that for inflation, it's dollars and 46 cents, which is about a 902% increase over these many, many years. And that's all I have as far as production costs. Jimbo, I think you got a little more specific uh, production costs uh, itemized section here if you want to go ahead and jump into that along with the cash. Absolutely. So a little bit more detailed into the production value of this. Um, like Eric said, the shooting script dated was August 12th for 1960. The producer and the secretary had a, a, a total of $1,935. And now you see under this, there's one that says the story and secretary. So there's two different secretaries here. I don't know if it's the same secretary, but that had a cost of $2,155. Uh, the director got uh, $1,250 for this episode. The cast got a total of $4,950 and yes, three cents. So I don't know where, who, who, who negotiated the three cents into the deal, but that's that. I don't have a breakdown of what cast members got paid what. It's just the total cast. Uh, the unit manager and secretary uh, was $600. So then again, there's another secretary. Uh, there's a production fee of $825. Uh, agents and commission made $2,500. Legal and accounting made $250. And here's one, below-the-line charges for MGM, $28,043.86. And below-the-line charges other, which was $754.16. And yes, the total production cost was $43,263.05. So there you have a little bit of 
uh, how much it took to produce an episode of The Twilight Zones. As you'll notice in some of the episodes going forward, some of them cost more, some of them cost less. And it was just um, their way of trying to reduce the cost, uh, as we'll see in our next episode, of the different uh, television cameras used uh, to film those episodes. So let's go ahead and move on to the cast. Uh, this uh, person needs really no introduction. He's legendary in his own uh, status. Yep. Uh, William Shatner uh, plays Don Carter. You probably know him most for his legendary role as Captain Kirk from the original Star Trek, the original series. Um, also several spin-off movies. And he was also like one of the first actors to go to space here recently, last year. Um, at what, 90, 90 years old or close to it or a little older, I think? I think he was, yeah, 92 or 93, maybe. Um, So then you also have his playing his wife, Pat Carter. You have Patricia Breslin. Um, She was a a mainstay on General Hospital for a couple, I think 23 episodes, I think I read. Um, She was in the movie The People's Choice in 1955. Uh, She's been in Alfred Hitchcock's Presents. Um, And she's also in a movie called Homicide in 1961, which I just sent the trailer to Kyle because it's very interesting and we might be covering on the main feed. But she was also in The Twilight Zone Season 4, Episode 10, which we'll get there, No Time Like the Past. Next, we have Guy Wilkerson. He's the counterman. Um, Eric, you may not know this, but he was actually in To Kill a Mockingbird. He was uncredited as the jury foreman in To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, he was, he's okay. been in a tons of TV shows. I mean, there's, he's got 211 credits to his name, uh, including Captain Midnight from 1942. Next, you have... The, Another familiar person, um, you should know him, uh, Stafford Rep, who was the mechanic. His probably greatest thing you know him for was Chief O'Hara from Batman in 1966. He just has that voice yep. and look. Um, I remember him. Yep. Uh, next, you have uh, Walter Reed, who he's just credited as the man. Uh, he was in How to Make a Monster in 1958, but he was also in the Batman TV series as well, where he played an officer for two episodes. He also had 211 credits to his uh, television fame, too. Dee Carroll, she played the woman. Uh, She was in the TV show Huckleberry Finn in 1975, where she played Aunt Sally. Um, She was also in a bunch of TV episodes, including Emergency in 1972, and she has 122 uh, credits to her name. And this guy, even though you may not uh, recognize him, uh, he is probably... Uh, one of Twilight Zone fame, and I'm getting ready to tell you why. Robert McCord, he was a dinner Patreon. He's uncredited. This guy was in 32 episodes of the Twilight Zone. Wow. He is like a glorified uh, extra. And here you are, just from, (laughs) and he's been in all five seasons of the Twilight Zone. These are the ones from episode, uh, for season one, I'm getting ready to tell you, he was in eight episodes of season one. First one was episode one, uh, or sorry, uh, season one, episode three, where Mr. Denton on Doomsday, he was the stagecoach driver. Uh, episode, uh, season one, episode six, the escape clause, he was a man in the subway. Uh, season one, episode ten, Judgment Night, he was the sailor in the ski cap. Episode or Season one, episode 19, Purple Testament, he was the man walking in the lobby. Uh, season one, episode 22, Monsters Do on Maple Street, he was the ice cream vendor. Uh, season oh. one, episode twenty-three, uh, "World of Difference." Um, he was a, a cameraman, uh, a cameraman crew member. Uh, and season one, uh, episode twenty-four, "Long Live Walter Jameson," where he played a student. And season one, episode twenty-eight, "A Nice Place to Visit," where he was a waiter. So this guy, I mean, I, as far as I can tell, I think he might have the most credits. Or credits are uncredited in the Twilight Zone series, besides maybe Rod Serling himself. So I thought that was a very yeah. interesting, <laughs> interesting tidbit of information. And then, yes, of course, you have Rod Serling, uh, the host of the Twilight Zone and the narrator, as usual. So Eric, that is your cast for all right. Time. Boy, a lot of good, a lot of good stuff there. Let's uh, move along with the plot here. Don and Pat Carter are on their honeymoon when their car breaks down in the small town of Ridgeview, Ohio. And store that under your cap because we're going to come back to Ridgeview, Ohio <laughs> and the significance there. Uh, they have uh, a few hours to spare while their car is being repaired and spend time in the diner. There they find a fortune-telling machine, a game where you ask a question, and for a penny the machine will spit out an innocuous answer. When the machine apparently begins to predict events... 
Don's promotion at work, a near accident on the street outside, a superstitious Don becomes infatuated with the device threatening his marriage and his future with Pat. So I want to segue into this Reader's Digest article on readersdigest.com. And the title of it is, it's uh, 11 Bizarre Origins of Everyday Superstitions. So I think we, we touch on about two, maybe three of the superstitions in this episode. But uh, let's go with a few of those and I'll read a little bit about the origins and why we quote-unquote have superstitions. Uh, the number 13. Uh, the fear of the number 13 is perhaps one of the most well-known superstitions. Uh, in fact, uh, it's called, I don't even know if I can pronounce this, it's called triskedeophobia. Nailed it. I, I don't know. It's a, <laughs> that's a long word. Triskedeophobia. It's the phobia's official name, and it's the fear of the number 13. And it hits about 10% of the U.S. population, according to History.com. Wow. That sounds really ridiculous. But anyway, it's one of the earliest myths surrounding the unlucky number 13 due to a clerical error where the 13th law was omitted from the world's largest or oldest legal document, the Code of Hammurabi. Uh, then there's Judas Iscariot, the 13th guest to arrive at the Last Supper. I don't know so much about that one. Um, uh, a similar occurrence took place in the Norse mythology when a mischievous god Loki was a 13th member of a dinner party and then of course we always uh reference the science about uh why we always fear or this is a familiar one the friday the 13th you know obviously that one's always a a fearful date but here's one from the episode uh carrying a rabbit's foot that's number two on this reader's digest uh list here it says this belief stems from the ancient beliefs of toad totemism or totism uh, the spiritual connection between animals and humans. If a tribe believed they descended from rabbits, it wasn't unusual for them to carry around parts of that rabbit's body, particularly the feet. The foot is also a phallic symbol that represented increased fertility and a bountiful harvest and a good fortune. Uh, Celtic tribes believed that rabbits could speak with underground gods and spirits thanks to their burrows and another reason why carrying a rabbit's foot could bring good luck. All right, so that's the rabbit's foot. Let's talk about uh, number three on the list was a four-leaf clover. We're all kind of familiar with the four-leaf clover. And it says, according to Scientific American, the chances of finding a four-leaf clover are 1 in 10,000, making the find a lucky thing in and of itself. But the luck of the clover dates back to Adam and Eve, according to HowStuffWorks.com. Legend has it that as Adam and Eve were leaving the Garden of Eden, Eve plucked a four-leaf clover as a souvenir. Uh, another theory dates back to the ancient Celtic world when it was believed that a four-leaf clovers would help ward off evil spirits. There was also a medieval theory that possessing this lucky plant allowed one to see fairies. Hmm. Uh, so... That's that one. You want to hear about wearing black for mourning? Well, I'll go ahead and throw this one in here. While you might not think twice about it, wearing black stems from the superstition. Uh, many ancient cultures actually considered death to be contagious, and it was wise to avoid someone who had recently been around a dead person. In Rome, wearing all black was a way to let everyone know that you had been in the presence of death. So that's one for uh, is wearing it, black. Is there one about a black cat crossing the street, too? No. Walking under a ladder. Uh, stepping on stepping on cracks. <laughs> uh knocking on wood. I don't have anything about the ladder or anything, but that's just a couple. Uh I think two. Clo the clover on the keychain that Don has, and then he also has a rabbit's foot. And actually later in the episode you actually see him when he gets up after he's been talking to the Mystic Seer, and I'm kinda of getting ahead of myself, but he'll I notice this. I've seen this episode probably like five times, but I went back and watched it again. And he actually kisses the key ring as he gets up from the table. You know, sort of, he, he was deeped, or he was steeped very deep in superstition, uh, speaking of Don. But, uh, well, do we want to go ahead and launch right into the episode here, Jimbo? Do you have anything off the top that, uh, um, sure. let as me far go as introduction? Yeah, let me go ahead and throw this in here. Um, this is the ideal of why, uh, how Richard Matheson, uh, came up with the ideal of this uh, episode. So Richard Matheson recalled the genesis for the ideal of the script to author Matthew R. Bradley 
On nick of time, my wife and I were in a coffee shop in the San Fernando Valley, and there was this little fortune-telling machine that answered yes or no. And so I just thought, oh, that's an interesting idea. You know, most of them come, the der- deriv- derivation um, is something you read. With me, it's mostly something I see in the movies. If it's a lousy movie, I don't leave, which I should, but my mind drifts and something that I see may just trigger an alternative idea. Matheson put a few pennies into the machine, and the prediction gave the impression of coming true. The art department added the devil's head for effect, which was not described in the original script. Uh, Matheson was paid $2,000 for the rights to uh, In the Nick of Time. The title would later be shortened for The Twilight Zone. Originally, this was planned to be script number 41. Two months before this episode went to film in early June, Boris Segal was originally slated to direct. Sagal was unable to commit due to scheduling conflicts, so on July 27, 1960, Richard L. Baer took over the helm. Sagal did manage to do two episodes of the series later on, The Silence and The Arrival. The filming was completed a few hours less than originally planned. So, Alright, so that's sort of the origin story of how Richard Matheson, the genesis, if you will, of the idea. As we open the episode, um, the first trivia point that I kind of come to for all you car buffs out there. This car in this episode that's being towed behind the tow truck is a Ford, uh, excuse me, a Ford Fairlane Skyliner. It's a 1957. I'm not sure it's on the exact date because I had to do a little Google research, but it looks like it's a 1957 uh, convertible and they are replacing the fuel pump. The fuel, fuel pump has gone out. So a fuel pump would cost you today for that particular car, it would cost you around $110. I think I looked it up. It was close to $20 for the year that this episode uh, aired, which would have been like around close to $20 for a fuel pump to, to replace for that. Eric, did you car. did you ever have a conver- cool car. did you ever have a convertible? No, but I would like to have one <laughs> maybe before I pass on out of this world. I, I've never owned one. They're, here in the Midwest, they're not really that practical because right. we get a lot of weather. Unless it's your extra car that you could store in your garage, <laughs> but that would be awesome. Maybe that I could have one, well, I, one day. I know you were, cool. you were in the mood to car shop the last couple of weeks, so I thought maybe if uh, I watched this, you would go out and just, you know, buy you a convertible. Yeah. Yeah, I've got the bug pretty bad here. Um, yeah, I'm ready to switch cars and and uh, get something new. I like to, it hits me. You know, they call it a seven-year itch for a reason. About every seven years, it's like time to trade up the cars. But uh, Ford Fairlane Skyliner for the the first uh, trivia point here. Uh, moving on to the second notation that I made. Um, it's a sign that's in the garage. Uh, I don't know. It, it might be interesting to some. It might not be. But uh, it states this: I have not been told is no excuse. Uh, no by observing thinking studying doing this is the sign on the wall in the garage which can be seen as the car is towed in so make of it what you will uh, apparently this particular garage had a lot of <laughs> trouble with employees maybe making excuses you could probably apply that to a lot of places of employment um so that's just a little tidbit but do you but do you uh, think that that third- sign was for the garage workers or for the uh customers coming in could have yeah i guess it could have been for both i didn't really consider that um so after uh don and pat drop off the car you know and they talk to the mechanic to, slash tow truck guy uh chief o'hara <laughs> <laughs> after they talk to him they decide well they find out it's going to be about i think what four hours yeah, or three or four hours for their car to get repaired so they go uh you know they decide they're gonna walk down the sidewalk I think this is in here. I'm going to throw this in here because there's a line, and I looked it up, and it comes straight out of the script, but I can't figure out what it means. Maybe one of our listeners would know. Uh, you know, Pat uses the line, June prune honeymoon. And I like that is totally foreign to me. I don't know what it means. I'm sure it has something to do with honeymooners and, you know, marriage. And, you know, I'm sure it may be because people are married in June. I don't know. But I looked it up on the Internet. Well, that's I when I got out, married. Like, I got married in June. So, yeah. Yeah. Maybe because they're. But I'm not going to call my wife. I'm not going to call my a wife a prune. Of, <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah. I, I don't know what that exactly means. But, uh, yeah. So moving on to the next expression, as they're walking down the sidewalk, they come to a light pole. They're trying to cross the street. Um, 
And they use, I think Don uses the expression bread and butter, which again is another superstitious blessing. Okay, get this. Bread and butter is a superstitious blessing or charm typically said by young couples or friends walking together when they are forced to separate by an obstacle, such as a pole or another person. By saying the phrase, the bad luck of letting something come between them is thought to be averted. Both walkers must say the phrase, and if they do not do this, then a bitter quarrel is expected to occur. Mm. The concept derives from the difficulty of separating butter from bread once it has been spread. Buttered bread cannot be unbuttered. So that is an interesting little tidbit right here early in the episode. And because I don't think Pat says it back, mm. only Don says bread and butter. So you see this wedge beginning to form, and we'll get back to that later on in the episode um i think we come to the next um specific item that i have here i think we go after we come off the street we go into the diner they find their place at the booth and then i said ridgeview to ridgeview excuse me ohio would come into play here i think that's in uh uh, the monologue here by Serling. Serling talks about a small town in Ridgeview, Ohio, which is interesting because he always wrote from a place from, uh, you know, what he knew. So this is a little interesting trivia about Rod. Rod, he not only lived in Ohio for eight of the 50 years he spent on the planet from 1946 to 1954, he started his writing career there. And after serving as a paratrooper in the South Pacific during World War II, he enrolled at Antioch College in Yellow Springs. It was there he decided to become a writer, and he returned in the 60s to teach at that college. And that's according to Cleveland.com. So it's just a little review there, a little research, and we find little interesting tidbits throughout the episode that relate to Rod personally. So I thought that was kind of cool. Jimbo, do you got anything in, inside of the episode here as we're in the initial... Actually, we were moving along in act number one. Um, not so far, um, but um, I'm trying to remember because it's been a second since I watched this. Is this where, when they first go in there, do they actually sit down at that table? Or is somebody sitting at that table that has the machine on it? They... The table is open in the in, in the, the first, first one? act. Okay, so but, that must be later on yeah, when they when come they back. Come back okay. When they yeah, when they come back, there's uh, some older ladies sitting there. Yeah. Um. So, I think that's as far along as we're uh, as far as we're moving along in the episode. You know, well, I'll, I'll just note this. Uh, in reference to the wedge being driven, um, in the beginning act. They they both sit on the same side of the booth. I talked about that uh, with Jimbo off air. But Don and Pat sit on the same side of the booth. And as Don sort of becomes more and more uh, gripped by the superstition of the mystic seer, uh, you see that wedge forming. And then in the second act, when they come back to the booth, what you just I only bring it up because you just ref- referenced it earlier, Jimbo. They actually sit on opposite sides of the booth uh, when they come back in the second act. But Pat is, I don't know, in the beginning she's sort of playfully engaged in, in you know, the Mystic Seer and the Fortune Teller. And, you know, we, we have magic eight balls and all this stuff. It's kind of, they're kind of fun, you know. But when she sees Don's, you know, being captivated by this, she becomes a lot more distressed and concerned. And you can really pick up on that a lot the first thing that sort of i don't know grabs don's attention is he's up for a promotion right they're traveling across the country and they're trying to get back i think to where they live in i think new york or new jersey um and so don decides he's going to call the office and he talks to the secretary and he's sort of inquiring whether he got the promotion or not and I don't, I don't know, Jimbo, if you have it, but I don't have a list of all the actual cards and what the sayings are, like what the actual Mystic Seer sayings are. But that was one of the first ones. You know, and he goes and calls. So the, 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 the thing about this Mystic Seer, if you will, and I use my air quote parentheses, is yeah, everything sure. that it's spitting out is like that magic eight ball you get with a kid and you shake it up and it's like, cannot be seen. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, yes, it's going to happen. Yes, largely so. Yes. You know, no, not at this time. Wait and see. You know, it's a very generic mm-hmm. 
answers General. that it's yeah. giving. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is so wrapped up in it that he's making those answers be like it's actually reading his fortune. Yeah. Uh, Richard Matheson says here was so impressed with Patricia Breslin's portrayal of William Shatner's character's wife that he lobbied for her to be given a similar role in Shatner's second and last Twilight Twilight Zone outing, the uh, the Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet in 1963. But thus, that did not happen. So that was obviously that's a very famous. It's probably episode, one of the most of famous episodes. It's probably you know the yeah. one that put William Shatner on the map. Yeah, so she did a really good job, and I thought she did a really good job in portraying his wife in this particular episode, too. Um, but anyway, going back to the Mystic Seer, and Don is, you know, he's calling his office. He finds out he gets the, you know, the promotion. He's going to be an office manager, and, you know, he has all these big plans, as most people, you know, young people do, and he's a newlywed, and. You know, things are looking up. So that just sort of cements in his mind, like, well, this thing has got to be for real because look at all the good fortune that came from, you know, this one phone call. And then, um, you know, trouble kind of descends in the episode because Don continues to ask it. He tries to ask more specific questions and he gets more general answers and he becomes actually gripped by fear uh, that something bad is going to happen by asking the mystic seer a couple more questions. And, you know, he's af- actually afraid to leave the cafe because he's afraid that something bad's going to happen. And, you know, we cut to the street and they decide they're going to go out for a walk. And again, Pat is just becoming more increasingly frustrated, I guess, with, you know, the, the whole situation and just, she can't understand how he's so captivated and he's trying to explain to her how could it know these things and you know he's trying to give his you know argument and then they come to the street and you know he don grabs her hand and they're going to walk across the street and there's like a truck coming but what they don't see is a car on the other side of the truck and don says oh we can make it and so he grabs her and he they run across the street and they almost get hit and again that just that's the second thing that cements in his mind. Well, the mystic seer must be right because tragedy was just barely averted. And, you know, I had this conversation with this machine, uh, you know, in the, the coffee shop or the diner or whatever. And so, again, he's just more and more convinced that, you know, this thing is predicting his fortune. And uh, there's a throwaway line here as they're, they're walking through um, town on the sidewalk. I think, Jimbo, you had that particular uh, yeah this is this is a uh, one of the bit of trivia when you're, when you're when you're watching this episode when this scene comes up you were kind of taken aback about it um because it's a word that's not used any or hardly anymore and if it is it's more uh, uh replaced by another word so i'm going to read it but i'm gonna, not going to use the the word uh that's used uh basically uh William Shatner says, basically, stop treating me like a, uh, I'll I'll use the word mentally challenged uh, child. Um, They use the R word here. So um, on November 19, 1960, the day after this episode was telecast, Mrs. Robert Cassandra of Hillside, Illinois, wrote a letter to Serling concerned about the content of this episode. Yesterday, as my husband and I watched your show, Nick of Time, with William Shatner and Patricia Breslin, the actor, in answer to the actress, William Shatner said, quote, stop treating me like a uh, R-word child. My husband and I were stunned at this malicious-sounding statement. If you only knew how that statement hurt, couldn't you have used a different term? I have a feeling we are not alone in feeling this way. We have a uh, R-word darling that God sent to us. Sterling sent a prompt reply. I did not write the script of Nick of Time. But I know the writer personally and professionally, and I also know that he is a man of stature and goodwill who would never knowingly have caused as much personal hurt to you as he obviously did with a thoughtless throwaway line, which to him meant nothing, but which to you must have been heart-rendering. Please accept my apologies in this and my assurance that it will never happen again on my show or any program in which I have a part. Too often we go along blithely unaware of the myriad meanings of language amongst people, where to most a certain line is general, unspecific, and quite innocuous. To others, it has a very special meaning and can be both damaging and offensive. I'll be most careful of this in the future, and I thank you so very much for calling it to my attention. 
Um, this isn't yeah. the first time that we've seen that Rod Sterling has had to write an apology um, for the Twilight Zone. Um, and and I don't know, you know, but you can tell Rod's a, Rod's a, uh, a man of, of uh, I guess, uh, stature, a man of feelings. Character. Character, yeah. right. Um, and, but, you know, to say that the the uh, the director of this uh, wouldn't have done it on purpose. Maybe he did, um, but as you know, we talked about this a little off air. That some of the words that we used as children in grade school, uh, even high school, probably were offensive, even though they weren't bad words at the time. You know, what I mean, they're they're more offensive mm-hmm. now than they were then, um, and I think a lot of people. Um, have have come a long way, uh, me and you included, about not using those terms anymore. Um, but it's just, um, it, it takes character like Rod Serling to admit when he was wrong, or his director, even though he didn't know about it, he still took the time to personally address the issue with the lady that he offended, and also basically a blanket apology to everybody that he did. And I think that's a good point. Yeah, I, I wouldn't speak to that too the it says that he responded to her very promptly and i think that again that speaks to his character he didn't just he could have easily ignored the letter but you know he considered it an important enough thing to respond and offer his apologies which this has been multiple multiple times where he's you know responded to people uh who might have even had criticisms and so uh, you know, I just think, again, it speaks to his character that, you know, he wanted to try to at least offer an apology and he, you know, tried to explain that it was just a throwaway line. And, you know, yeah, just, you know, it makes him uh, that much better and greater in, in, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, the Twilight Zone was not telecast on the evening of November 25th, 1960. I'll just go ahead and throw this in here, this little bit of trivia. It was because of an hour-long TV special on CBS Reports. This documentary entitled Harvest of Shame was a study on migratory farm workers in the country. Edward R. Murrow served as both host and reporter. The presentation was described by CBS in a press release as these are different views of the migrant workers who follow the sun and endless circle of poverty uh, from Florida to, to New England, from California to the Pacific Northwest, tonight on CBS Television Network, will bring you the vivid story of these underpaid, underfed, and undereducated Americans who harvest the crops. Uh, at the very moment when most of the land is filled with the spirit of Thanksgiving, because this was, you know, November 25th, that would have been around Thanksgiving time, you will meet the millions of men and women and children whose lives and whose labor are America's harvest of shame. Today, this television special is still considered one of the most heralded TV documentaries of all time, which has prompted me, I need to go and watch it, I Mm -hmm. guess. It's like the number one documentary of all time, and I've actually never seen it. And it's interesting because it's dealing with something that, uh, an issue that we're actually still dealing with today here in America all these many years Mm -hmm. later. So that would be an interesting watch. Absolutely. Um. Anything else, uh, Jimbo, or you just got general trivia um, from here on in? Yeah, I'll save it for the end. Uh, I'll throw this out here. Uh, there was, okay. uh, on the evening of May 13, 1996, uh, right before I graduated high school, actually, uh, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air did a television uh, episode with William Shatner as the guest where they actually referenced his perform- the performance of this on The Twilight Zone. So uh, you might want to check that out if you can have it on DVD or Voodoo or whatever, maybe YouTube, so... Other than that, I'll just throw uh, my little story in at the end about this uh, having some similarities to another Twilight Zone episode that we have covered. Okay. So let me throw this in here. I have a a portion of the script that I want to read. As we move along in the episode, Pat and Don come back, obviously, to the diner. The mechanic comes in after a short brief time back at the same table. Will they come back? And they try to get their original table because Don, again, is just so gripped by superstition. He has to ask the Mystic Seer more questions. So they come back, and then that's where we've already pointed out that they they sit on opposite sides of the booth. Again, this wedge is becoming more and more um, visible. And as we crescendo to the episode, um, let me just give you the... This is I thought this was a great uh, sort of soliloquy or monologue that Pat gives. Um 
let me back up in the script a little bit. Um, she, she again is sort of pleading with him and asking him to, you know, to listen to her. She says, Oh, sweetheart, listen to me, please. If you love me, just listen to me. Um, and then Don says, no, you listen to me. This machine is predicting our future. Do you think I could just walk away from it? And Don begins to like cradle. It says cradle this, the mystic seer. Pat says, I'm not talking about the machine anymore. I'm talking about you. And then she goes on to say, are you just going to sit there and let that, that thing run your life? And she goes on, she says, isn't that exactly what you're letting it do? Well, let me, let me give Don's response. She says, are you going to just sit back and let that thing run your life? And he says, run my life. Don stares at the seer for a long moment, then rises and crosses to Pat. Run my life, he says. And she responds, isn't that exactly what you're letting it do, Don? It made you call the office before. It made you stay here instead of leave. It made you afraid to walk down the street. And now it's telling you where to go, where you're going to live. Why it's as if this very, every superstitious feeling you've ever had is wrapped up in this one machine. It doesn't matter whether it can foretell the future. What matters is whether you believe more in luck and in fortune than you do in yourself. Well, you can decide for your own well, you can decide your own life. You have a mind and a wonderful mind. Don't destroy it trying to justify that cheap penny fortune machine to yourself. So that that's kind of a, you know, she goes on for, you know, a good 30, 40 seconds with that line. I thought that was really sort of the, the hinge of the whole episode. She's making a distinction really between, I think we'll talk about this in our, our wrap, uh, in our questions and observations section, which I can sort of transition into that. Deciding your own life versus superstition. And I think, Jimbo, you had some thoughts on that as well. Uh, do you want to go ahead and, and read what you had written down as far as your questions and observations? Um, let me go ahead and, 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 and uh, read uh, this, this similarity uh, or differences between this episode and if we go way back, I believe it's called The Fever. Okay. Um, so, uh, basically, I'll just start at the beginning. This is from the book uh, Rod Serling of the Twilight Zone, the 50th Anniversary Tribute by Douglas Brode and Carol Serling. If you're a Twilight Zone fan, this is another must-have. There's a lot of little tidbits and information in this one as well. So, uh, this, I'm just going to read this a couple of paragraphs. It's a young, attractive couple pause on their journey in nick of time. The direction is reversed from the fever. They drive through a small town in Ridgeview, Ohio, on their way to New York. Don... Uh, and Pat uh, Carter pause on their honeymoon when their convertible needs repairs. To kill time, they wander through a hamlet untouched by changes in post-war society. In an ancient diner, Carter grows fascinated with a tabletop fortune-telling machine. Insert a penny and the devil-faced contraption spits out a card with an ambiguous destiny. At first amused, then concerned, finally devastated, Pat watches as her husband becomes an addict. Richard Matheson wrote the play, yet certain aspects appear to echo Serling's life. Shatner resembles Serling, short, darkly, handsome, conventional, but with an edge. More notably is the resemblance between Patricia Breslin and photographs of Carol Kramer Serling from the late 1940s. This the beautiful brunette with a probing intelligence and a firm moral, though not simplistically moralistic, stance suggests that this couple stands in for the Serlings, who did journey from Heartland, Ohio, to Manhattan after Rod's early success. The machine predicts that Carter will receive a promotion. When Carter learns via another long-distance call that he did get that raise, he becomes convinced that the machine is all-knowing. Thanks to Pat's insistence, Doug Carter, or sorry, Don Carter manages to make the break. We'll drive out of this town and go where we want anytime we please. Carter sums up the courage to counter his addiction thanks to a wife who is his equal, as compared to what an earlier generation might have considered a mere appendage. Man, that's a, that's a tough, that's a really tough line right there. Uh, this metaphor mm -hmm. extends beyond the Serlings. Don and Pat Carter escape because they represent a new American, a new Americans, young people redefining marriage as a true team. They serve as contrast for the old paradigm of marriage, which was the Gibbs and the fever of uh, the woman subservient to the man. Why does Don Carter deserve to be saved when Franklin Gibbs did not? Youth and attractiveness aside, Carter displays the warmth of a humanist. Before the problems begin, he and Pat hold hands, suggesting not only sensuousness, but a true affection for one another. Uh, he's also warm when speaking to others, including the diner's uh, counterman, who was played by Guy Wilkerson. Gibbs, on the other hand, 
sealed his fate when in response to Florence's request that he stop yelling because others were noticing at the casino, if you remember, uh, he shouted, mm-hmm. to the devil with people, I'm not concerned with people, only this devil of a machine. Uh, here we also encounter a final caper, if a uh, realistic one. No sooner have Don and Pat Carter left that another notably older couple, Walter Reed and D. Carroll, enter. He feeds the machine pennies. She weeps as the Satan-headed fortune teller regurgitates cards that in the man's mind imply that they are its slaves. The actors are dead ringers for Everett Sloan and Vivia Janice in The Fever. By implication, the older generation accepts its fate and so remains a prisoner of it, while the new breed of partners in life exert free will and escape. For them, then, there is hope for the future. Yeah, it's an interesting take, a uh, compare and contrast with the fever. I don't think they're the older couple are necessarily dead ringers, but it's, it's an interesting point of view. But yeah, that's where we leave and wrap the episode. The older couple are gripped by fear and superstition, and they're just you know loading the pennies in as fast as they can, and they're not going to make a move in their life without the mystic seer telling them what to do. And again, that brings us back around to. You know, this question is, are you deciding your own life or superstition? Do you make your own luck or are you subjected to an outside force called whatever? Well, let's, let's think, you know, it's, control your in life. Star Wars, it was known as this is your destiny, right? Right, right. Uh, so what you see here yeah. is is your destiny and you, your, your free will. Um, uh, predestination, you might even say, in, in some instances. But if you could solve that uh, issue, uh, we would be getting paid a lot more than what we do right now because it yeah. is. Uh, Please write and tell is, us. <laughs> uh, tell as old as time. Um, if you are able to dissect uh, all that stuff and put it into different categories, uh, whether it be religion in your life, um, the Bible, uh, whatever. Um, but but you can see it in this movie. Uh, it's expressed, you know, um, by by the obsession. Uh, 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 it's, it's awful funny that you know we did the Howling Man, and uh, you see his transformation into the horns and everything of what the world proceeds that Satan looked like, and uh, the little uh, thing on top of this machine does kind of resemble Satan, you know, as as people would perceive him mm-hmm. to look, uh, which um, I think that. In the end, love conquers all. So I think the love that Pat and uh, Don had conquered this obsession. But my question to you, Eric, is this. These are newlyweds on their honeymoon, right? Mm-hmm. My question to you is, did she, or even him, really know each other? Um, she says that That's she says this, the, the line that you just read, and I, and I was jotting it down as you were, you were reading, Pat says, you know, this is taking form of every superstition you ever had, every superstitious thought you mm-hmm. ever had. So uh, to me, I'm wondering if they ever had counseling before marriage. Um, did she really know him or was it just, you know, uh, oh, I'm in love. I don't really know him. You can be in love and not really know the person. Um, so some things come up in their past, but to me, um, she should have known, um, and there's no there's no way to tell this. She should have known, but if she said that line about his superstition thoughts, then he obviously had talked about it. She has to know because he has a rabbit foot on his uh, keychain. He has that lucky clover on his keychain. Um, so you might say that he has an addictive personality, I guess. Um, but but to me, um, that's just something that I, I thought about. Does she really know him, or is she just in love with him? Yeah, uh, that's a fair point. I think it's a good uh, snippet or uh, some good advice about marriage. I mean, I think you're right. I think she obviously knew that that was a piece of his personality, but loved him in spite of Mm -hmm. it. The problem is sometimes when you get into marriage, and I don't mean to go, uh, (laughs) I'm no marriage counselor. Welcome to marriage counseling, the Twilight Zone Yeah, right. Sometimes there are pieces of your mate's personality that, um, don't seem very influential or very big when you first meet because you are blinded by, you know, love. And as time goes on, kind of, you know, sort of, it sort of is representative of the episode. Those things that start out very small and little maybe quirks in someone's personality when you're with them day after day, year after year, um, 
it drives a wedge. It be you know, it might be a point of contention and, and that's, you know, what marriage is all about, working through those differences and you know, they sort of have that confrontational conversation like on the sidewalk there and you know, when she you know, she tells him and you know, he's going back and forth and he tells, you know, what you the the comment that you referenced earlier. He he feels like a child when she speaks he feels like she's speaking down to him. But, you know, that's just part of his personality. But again, uh, comparing the fever with this episode, it is an addictive person. It is an addictive part of his personality that he cannot let the superstitions go or just like gambling is addictive in the fever. So, yeah, um, it's it it definitely is interesting uh, that you raise that point. Did she really know him? Did she really know him? completely before they got married and you know maybe maybe not it doesn't really the episode doesn't really delve too deeply into that but i just had a question and i think i know the answer it's just sort of an open-ended question just for us to think did the mystic seer have actual powers to predict the future or was it all brought about in don's mind superstition and the obsessive behavior and i i think it's the and, I, and i think i bring it obviously uh, come back to the magic eight ball it's the exact same principle. Yeah. It's just you can you can find it at gag right. stores. You know what I mean. But this is the yeah, Twilight Zone, built, so you never know. <laughs> yeah. So he had built this up in his mind, and it literally would have, if if Pat wouldn't have stepped in, it probably would have ruined their life and marriage. I mean, it seems like he he was just completely consumed by this, and he was just going to let it run wild. So that's why I like the episode. Uh, Moving on, if I had to rate the episode again, I think it's probably definitely not as good as the last episode. Eye of the Beholder, not even it. I wouldn't say it's yeah, it's not close to Eye of the Beholder. Just by the the reveal and the twists and everything, that that's kind of untouchable. But I don't think it's a bad episode. I I don't think it's in the bottom tier either. I think it's probably a notch above middle of the road. I'm probably going to give it a seven and a half um, or so as far as we're rating as we go along. Uh, This next episode coming up after this one is a complete dud in my mind. But I thought this (laughs) had a good moral. It had a good... Um, you know, storyline. It had some, you know, it had a lot of the concept was good, and the script I thought was really good. Um, so yeah, I give it about a seven point five. And it's William Shatner. I mean, how could you not like William Shatner? The guy's just awesome. Jimbo. Well, <laughs> um, I, I will tell you this: out of three thousand five hundred eighty-nine votes on IMDb, this has a, a rating out of ten stars. Comes in at eight point three. Um, I will tell you that. Okay. But I think they're. I think close. they're wrong. Um, to okay. me, this is. Tell me this why. Is, I mean, when you think of of Twilight Zones, you think of a big twist. Uh, 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 oh man, this this stood out like last episode. Oh, they uncovered her face. She's beautiful. They're ugly. Uh, you think of Night at Willoughby uh, or Stop at Willoughby, where oh he's dead, but he's actually in Willoughby and the coroner's sons of Willoughby funeral home, whatever. Um, you think of mm-hmm. monsters do on Maple Street, how they're arguing, fighting, come to find out there's aliens. To me, this is just, uh, hey, my car broke down. We go in here, we put a quarter in the machine, and, and we, we go out. <laughs> There's nothing in this episode that draws me to it, that makes me like it. The, to me, this is, even though William Shatner and Pat, Patricia Breslin did great together, to me, it's, it's, it's not, I can't, even, I can't even put it in the in upper echelon of, 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 of season two, uh, just from the ones I've watched so far. I'm, I'm a little behind Eric. Eric's like on season four or five already. But I'm just saying, um, to me... <laughs> This, when I think of the Twilight Zone, this is one that does not ring Twilight Zone to me. Um, so for that, I am going to give this a four star. Oh, come no, on. No, seriously. I mean, if you think about it, it's it's not very good. Um, I don't know why you no. think it's a seven yeah. and a half. 3,500 people can't be wrong. <laughs> 30, out of the, <laughs> the four billion people on the earth, 3,500 thinks it's an eight point. Well, you know what? I'm going to go in there under a different account and give it like a two star. So it drops that down to like a six. Okay. Uh, yeah. But I mean, I mean, if at the end of this season and you look at this, this is probably going to end up probably around the middle of the pack, middle of the pack or lower for me. Um, but there's, there's nothing about this episode that stands out that's going to make me 
give it one of our tragedies at the end of the when we wrap up this. Mm. Um, absolutely not. There is nothing in this episode that yeah. is going to stand out that much. So, so you give it a four. I'm giving it a, a, and that's that's being generous. A solid four. You give it that. Are you giving me a boo. Let's uh, hear a solid it. explosion. <laughs> give me, give me, give me the boo, Eric. Go ahead. A punch. <laughs> 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 oh no, Eric's got toys now, so I'm gonna have to come up with something over here. Uh, yeah. But yeah, to me, it's just it's just okay. I mean, um, to me, the next episode you said was a dud. I think it has more character development than this episode did, um, and it has the, the Twilight Zone twist. Even though you see the twist coming a mile away in the next episode, I just think it's a better story. So, but we'll find out next week when we do uh, lateness of the hour. Um, that's all I've got for this episode. You? That's all I got for from my end. Do you want to go ahead and wrap us sure. up? Um, if you'd like to follow us on Facebook, uh, the Tragedy Cinema uh, podcast on Facebook, uh, we have a lot of fun on there. ADZ's up there crying about he's only seen like 28 Christmas movies out of the 100 that's written down. Or what? 38. Oh, sorry, 38. 38. Uh, so there's that. Um, if you want to uh, send us an email at the tragedy of cinema at gmail.com, uh, we'll read it. If you want to leave us a review, uh, but uh, we will read it on the air. Uh, but yeah, uh, as we trudge along the Twilight Zone, um, it's hard to do when you start looking at the season as a whole and adjusting these episodes where they fall into place for you because some stand out really well and actors and actors stand out really well. And there's some that just don't make the cut. And Hate to say it, but this is one of them. So, with that being said, I think this episode is coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And cut. Counterbalance in the little town of Ridgeview, Ohio. Two people permanently enslaved by the tyranny of fear and superstition. Facing the future with a kind of helpless dread. Two others facing the future with confidence. Having escaped one of the darker places of the Twilight Zone.